Hey, it's the Bill Kelly podcast for Wednesday. Greg Brady in for Bill. So something quite emasculating happening at my house right now with multiple men that I can't witness. If that's not a tease, I don't know what is. I really don't. But I'll explain that in the open. Dr. Kerry Bowman joins me, bioethicist and uh, an assistant professor at University of Toronto. And we'll talk about vaccine hesitancy, talk about how far we've come, kilometers perhaps ahead of the states. I would use miles, but it's Canada. And we'll talk to Alan Carter, anchor for Global News in Toronto. Charles McVitie and the potential for his Christian college to become a university. That's still very, very much on the scene. And I want to address that with Alan. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let me start here. There's a lot of things that in our professional and personal lives where we just have to take the L. You know, you get on that social media thing, you see people arguing all the time about everything. And and I, you know, sometimes it's just best, right? It's just best to to move along. You got something wrong. Look at the pandemic. How many things have we got wrong during the pandemic? Many things. Many misunderstandings about things. I'll never forget, remember, early days south of the border, Anthony Fauci and in within our borders, Dr. Teresa Tam said, don't them masks. Don't worry about the, uh, the masks. The masks will not. I'm not sure Teresa Tam used the phrase them masks, but I can't. There's no way to tell. Like, I don't have the audio. So they said, don't worry about those masks or them masks. Leave those masks alone. They won't help you. And they changed their mind about that. But that was good. You know why? Like that's some people say, you're backtracking. You, you, you know, you're, you're flip-flopping. Remember, that's a big political term, flip-flopping. Like nobody sits at the kitchen table and points at their wife or husband and goes, you're flip-flopping on this. No, no, no. You might have new information. You might have new data that's helpful. Maybe it's for your financial future. Maybe it's it's something to do with your kids and, and how you're bringing them up. But no, 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 no. And that's not flip-flopping. That's getting more data um, during a global pandemic about a uh, incredibly contagious hunt you down and make your life miserable or kill you virus. And it's great to have that extra information as we've moved along. And I said on Monday's show, I don't think we're going to see any surprises anymore about about COVID, even with these new variants of concern, because the vaccines are working remarkably effectively against the vaccines. Don't believe anybody telling you that they're not. They are. They're crushing the new variants. People are safe from the new variants if they're fully vaccinated. So there's been a lot of movement on on the vaccines and there's been a lot of movement on our education about what to do and one thing where we've fallen down and i think it's for rather um suspicious reasons is we won't hear government officials in the province of ontario acknowledge that the virus is airborne and that's too bad it is it it, it clearly is this isn't just about droplets that come out of your mouth or your nose um this isn't about um you know, cleaning things and think about how much bad information there is. For example, when when the province maniacally closed playgrounds for a day, that gave people the sense oh, there's something on the playground equipment that could transmit COVID. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. COVID doesn't sit on a slide. COVID doesn't sit on a swing. It's not surface based. But again, does every parent know that? Are we acknowledging this? I mean, I don't want to spend three hours telling you it's airborne. I, like, we, we got to move on at a certain point in time. But it is, and it's not surface-based. 
we were remember we were worried about our mail. We were we were worried about our groceries. I remember feeling nervous a couple times getting gas. You know, when gas was like sixty eight cents a liter. Fun days when nobody was going anywhere. Like you'd get on the highway to go somewhere. I remember taking groceries to my parents uh, outside of London, uh, north of London in Arva. And I took groceries to my parents, and I felt like a, just a hero. I felt like uh, Tom Hardy in Mad Max for you older folks. Mel Gibson in Mad Max. That's how I felt. And, uh, and, and like a real hero coming out of this, uh, this scenario. I know Tina Turner said we don't need another hero. I, I disagreed with that that night. I did. So we changed our perception about what COVID is. But before I move on with COVID, the times that we have to take the L in our lives are really tough moments. And this is one of those days. And let me explain. For me, personally, um, I, you do everything you can, right, to make things work. You do everything you can to maintain a good relationship with your parents. Uh, you get along to get along at, at your job. I've only been at three jobs in 20, 26 years or so. Um, I'm, pre- I'm pretty pleased with that. And, and radio and broadcasting is a pretty liquid business, right? And you're moving all the time as you're getting up, climbing the ladder, you hope. And I've only been at three places in 26 years, worked for three companies, and, uh, and generally been a happy, happy person, um, a, a, a good teammate. In the house, you try and do the same thing, right? We were talking about patio furniture yesterday. Guess, guess who's going to take in the patio furniture tonight? Me. I'm that guy. Why? Because it might rain. <laughs> I don't want the cushions getting wet. I, I I'm not a uh, I'm not that reckless that I think I can leave the patio cushions out every single day. But here's my loss of the day, and this is a really tough one. And this is going on at my residence without me there right now. There are men at my house right now putting in a uh, new sod in the front lawn, and this, yeah, I. Hit me more with that, Alicia. I this I'm a loser. This no doubt about it. Beck is talking to me right now. I did everything I could. I replaced. This, I've lived in this house uh, with my family eleven years, twelve years. I've replaced the sod three times. It stays a while. It's nice for a year and a half, a summer and a half, a summer and a spring, and then it goes brown. And then there's crabgrass, and then there's weeds. I've done. I won't say I've done everything I can. I've just done what I can do. And it is a admission of, uh, uh, honestly, of failure. There's no, you know, let, let, stop with that song. Give me something a touch more, um, give me something a touch more uplifting to make me feel better about. Well, that wasn't quite, yeah, that's Tom Petty's Even the Losers. That doesn't make me, I mean, I'm a little more, because the Beck thing's kind of a cliche, so. But it is, it is a terrible feeling. It is a awful feeling. To have men at your house while your wife and kids work inside, like my wife working at her job, my kids on, on virtual school, probably looking outside going, oh, those guys are way better than dad at this. Like it is, it is, I'm not saying, and I don't know that this is a purely male v. female issue, but as a man, as a guy, I take pride in some things. I don't know much about throw pillows. Some of you ladies out there do, and, and you know how to arrange them, and you know how many you need. Some of you need nine for your bed. I'm not speaking anecdotally. I don't know. I've only been in so many beds in the last uh, 21 years. So um, I don't know. Nine p- throw pillows? Is that a five? I, and what do they They just they look nice, and then you move them later while the, the guy comes in, and he wants to sleep, and then he moves it, and then you move it back the next morning. I, again, again, it's all a mystery to me. But lawns? 
I mean, I, I take pride in it. I want to cut it myself. I know men. I know men that get someone to cut their lawn. I, d- 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 like, honestly, uh, like, d- did your balls drop off? W- what happened? W- what's going on? You bring someone in, you bring another man in to cut your lawn? I get it if it's like if you live at like South Fork and you're J.R. Ewing. I don't think we ever saw Larry Hagman on the show Dallas cut his own lawn. Or Bobby. Even the year he was dead, nobody was taking his place cutting his lawn. That's a big lawn. Those guys aren't cutting their own lawn, I should say. But this is a 36 by 24 foot strip of lawn. And I couldn't maintain it. It's a bad, bad feeling. Um, I'm going to have to get over it. I'm going to move on to something more exciting, and that's uh, Stanley Cup playoff hockey. But did you see the news about Montreal? Oh, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talking about it. The Montreal Canadiens being able to have fans. in They have some still. I know they haven't won since 1993. Um, they'll be allowed to host, if you will, 2,500 fans for Game 6 on May 28th. That's nine days away, and Premier Francois Legault announced yesterday that province will ease a bunch of restrictions, including indoors, concert halls. So they'll take 250 people per section, and that will tally up to 2,500 fans of the Montreal Canadiens, one would figure, because we can't get into Quebec right now. There might be some random Leaf fans that live in uh, Quebec, but, uh, you know, again, how much do you want to torture yourself? I've already stopped thinking about my, my lawn, and uh, and I don't – Leaf fans living in Montreal must deal with the same thing. That's that's like digging your lawn up every year, to be perfectly honest. Um, so this is really intriguing to me, and I applaud the courage. Quebec's in a different spot right now with, with COVID. They're doing a little bit better than we are, and they haven't always. So this isn't me just, you know, sawing down Ontario over and over again. Um, I, I'm not sawing down Doug Ford in, in this context, and I'm not sawing down the health minister, Christine Elliott, who, by the way, is the maniac that closed playgrounds for a day. That's her idea. That's been well documented. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let can we get some high school science transcripts in for her at, at some point in time? That'd be like that'd be like Geraldo with uh, Al Capone's vault. Like I'd watch that show revealing her high school science transcripts. But I want to know what you think about the Canadians doing this. And when we look inside ourselves and inside our own province, you saw last week the mayor of Toronto canceled the CNE. He canceled an event that won't even start until just before Labor Day. We can't even delay that and have the CNE or outdoor fall fairs in small towns in September. Why? Many of us will be fully vaccinated by then. So do you look at what is happening in Montreal and say that's a little reckless or do you look at it and say I'm pretty damn envious I'm pretty envious of a lot of things that have been happening in the states when you see that that the Canadians are going to have fans in their building and we're still struggling to wonder about the CFL we're wondering to struggle about Hamilton's own Grey Cup later in December and again the CFL isn't playing without fans but how many can they have and how many will show up there's two different ways to look at, at how we're going to reopen and reinvigorate our lives. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm excited to get to our next guest. He's a bioethicist, assistant professor uh, with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Um, and a great interview. I want to chat with him about lots to do with the vaccines. He's Dr. Kerry Bowman. Dr. Bowman, thank you for making the time for me. It's Greg Brady. I appreciate you doing so today. Happy to do so. Um, where I was mentioning earlier, like we're able to to walk and chew gum at the same time, we're able to go, boy, we're lucky to be where we are right now. There's a lot of people sort of whooping and, and hooting and hollering, and I don't mind it that we're, we're catching up to the U.S. on first doses, that we're not being as uh, hesitant on the vaccine, perhaps, as, as they are, some other countries are. But we can still want more and ask for more and, and still do things right. Do, do I have that philosophy correct in your mind? Yeah, no, I think you do. I mean, it, it's really wonderful that Canada in the last, Look, it's not long, is it? Ten days, two weeks, maybe, uh, has really, really uh, pushed so far forward. But, you know, it's also not a competition. I I think it was painful for many of us as Canadians to watch the great progress the U.S. was making, and we were all happy to see them do it Mm -hmm. uh, when we were so far behind. And, And now we're finally pushing forward. And as I'm sure you know, and many people listening know, uh, we're probably going to overtake the U.S. in terms of um, the amount of first dose vaccines within days, as I understand it. Yeah, they're running into they're running into that wall. It looks like, doesn't it? I'm, I look at the states. There's a great New York Times live tracker on second doses, and it looks like they're hitting a wall. You can go into any CVS or Walgreens or drugstore and and get these vaccines. We're having to hunt them down a little more, like like valuable concert tickets or sporting events. They're right there for the U.S. And clearly, um, it, you know, people aren't aren't overwhelmingly flooding these places. They've already got it already or they're waiting on, on something for it. Here, it's a little different. It is a little different. But do remember that, you know, the, the worrisome thing in the United States is, is are they plateauing? And remember, the U.S. is, you know, there's 50 states, and there's, there's essentially what you can only call cultural differences between the states. They're mm-hmm. not all the same. Um, but, you know, if the U.S. plateaus now or soon, they're nowhere near uh, herd immunity, uh, you know, so that would not be good for anybody, including us. So, you know, what's looking like, and this could change easily, what's looking like is Canada's, you know, eagerness to be vaccinated right now appears to be much higher. Um, you know, as you mentioned, we're fully, fully booked. We could even do with more vaccines, although they're coming in. So mm-hmm. if this momentum keeps up, we may, you know, certainly exceed the U.S., so, again, you know, this isn't a sports competition, but but it, it's very good for our country. But if the U.S. does really plateau and nobody else really wants it or people don't follow up with second doses, you know, this will not be good for anybody, including us. I saw Dr. Kerry Bowman's our guest, by the way, on The Bill Kelly Show. Um, I saw you quoted on the weekend about AstraZeneca, and I really want to, uh, you to be able to expand on those thoughts. I think that's such great messaging for our audience. But let me ask you first about some of the things we're seeing in the U.S. I think we could agree that we're just not as, as politically at odds about, about COVID in general or mask mandates or, or the vaccine in general. But I do wonder, some people are going to you know be weeks after they're fully vaccinated saying, well, when's the first time I can go into a store without a mask on when's the first time i can hug someone again these are really important questions uh, that people have we're, we're, we're probably a few months away from these things but there's a lot of push and pull in the states about this stuff with with various states having different rules about going into big stores without a mask and whatnot do you think we're gonna fight and tug at each other a little bit like this as well in a few months 
I, I probably not to the extent of the United States, um, you know, because they, they really do see this as an expression of freedom. And I don't say that critically. I mean, mm-hmm. that, those are American values and we, we need to respect that. You know, it's their nation. Uh, they really do see this as an expression of freedom. If you look at the Texas legislation, it, it's illegal to make mandates for certain masks at, at, at this time. You know, Canada, we tend to be the cautious ones. And so what we you know, I, I actually fear that if our leadership is too cautious, Canadians may push back, um, you know, wear masks almost indefinitely, you know, like social gatherings being extremely limited. All this, uh, assuming we have high levels of vaccinations and our numbers crash, I, I see Canada may take a very, very cautious route. And I don't know how much patience people are going to have if they feel the cautiousness is overstepping things after this long awful situation we've been through. I think that's fascinating you say that because you've traveled all over the world. You've been an advocate for for so many uh, remarkable causes about the environment, about indigenous rights. And I do look at, at where we're at. And again, phenomenal place to live. Most of us would never even dream of living anywhere else and being as happy. But when, to me, when, when government takes care of a lot of your needs, they pave our roads, they give us safe schools, safe neighborhoods, mostly um, we do become dependent on government. Maybe we're a little more vulnerable with um, with freedom of expression and independence. And in the States, as you know, as you're documenting, they don't hesitate to question their government. And that's no, not just the last no, five they, years. They've been, this, they've been doing this. They've been doing this for two, two centuries. Yeah. These are big differences between the two countries. But look, you know, speaking of the United States, I, I must say the amount of them offering vaccines to Canadians. Yes, they have a lot of vaccines, but, you know, this is nothing but goodwill on their part. Like, mm. I tried to find out online who's actually paying for these vaccines, and I, I can only assume the Americans are paying for them. Um, and they're really not responsible for the safety and health and well-being of Canadian citizens. So this is an act of absolute goodwill on their part. And I, you know, I, I guess it's more state-specific, but I, there's none of the bordering states are saying we don't want to do it. So I, I, I really do commend them for that. Totally. Uh, bioethicist Kerry Bowman, uh, kind of to join us on 900 CHML, 980 CFPL in London with yours truly, Greg Brady. I The AstraZeneca vaccine, I you know I think people were ready to rip their hair out last week. I think it was dividing. Uh, you noted in a, co- a, a comment on the weekend, it was very much dividing the medical community. And I think since NASI's recommendation, I, Dr. Bowman, I think it swung back around to where so many people are looking at the data. There was a positive study from Spain yesterday and saying, if I was safe with my first shot, I surely look to be safe with my second shot. And yeah. I don't want the fear of of the mix and match. I don't want the fear of waiting um, and, and, and putting something different in my body. For some people, understandably, I guess this was a leap of faith and trust that, that we should have. These vaccines are very safe. And damn, do they work well. I, what's your thought on what we do with all the the AZ we've got right now? Well, look, I, I think many things, and I've got my own biases, so many of us too, because I've had AstraZeneca happily, mm-hmm. happily. And I, I'll just say, look, I'm not a virologist. I, I do follow the data, you know, uh, but I, I would really, really want the right to take my second dose as AstraZeneca and not something else. That's my position, and it's a personal position. But, but you know, I, I, I feared that the AstraZeneca mess w- was going to really derail uh, vaccine confidence in Canada, and it doesn't seem to have. But what I would say is this. We've got a lot of AstraZeneca coming in. We cannot at all be in a position where it's going to either sit in freezers or expire. If we, you know, if we're going to offer them, hopefully, to Canadians that want it, 
Uh, the rest really, really needs to be in places like India where they need it from an ethical and an epidemiological point of view. I think it would be a shame to this country if any of them are wasted. Where do you stand? Uh, and I think uh, you being a bioethicist, uh, I, I, I'd practically defer to you on this. But I look at my own circumstance. I'd rather my 77 and 75 year old parents get their second dose before my 13 or 15 year old get their first dose. I know there's exceptions. I know there's children with special needs. I know there's kids in houses that are you know working at the grocery store, or the beer store and it's part time work mm-hmm. and their parents would want them to get it. Of course they would. Um where do you like so every every situation is unique, but eventually we're going to have to police this some way or the other and, and land on one side of the coin, aren't we, in terms of second doses? Yeah. yeah, we are. I mean, it's an ethical question. It's also an epidemiological question. I mean, I, I think your instinct is right. We have to protect the most vulnerable. But having said that, my read on this is, is mm. you know, real world data, meaning not peer reviewed yet, but but first doses are turning out with all the vaccines to be much, you know, more effective than people had originally thought they were. So that's all good news for us. But I would like to see the most vulnerable receiving Mm -hmm. their vaccines, uh, you know, as soon as they possibly can. Uh, You know, the wild card with Canada is is all this could unravel if we we sort of lose our momentum with the second dose and either we have supply interruptions or vaccine hesitancy rises. I'm not suggesting that's going to happen, and I actually don't think it is. I think our second doses will work themselves out quite well. But that's the wild card with the Canadian strategy is we barely touched the second dose uh, challenge at all, and we've all that lies ahead of us. Yeah. And the the UK, again, UK has utilized AstraZeneca by the millions. It's their vaccine. It's their hometown vaccine, if you will, home country vaccine, if you will. But they sort of went and said, let's let's spray everybody with one dose. Let's let's take the hoses to where the fires are then yeah. and, and get our most vulnerable too. obviously, like long term care homes and people in their 80s. But people in their 40s and 50s are just getting their second. Like, I think we think we look at the UK, we see fans at soccer matches, pubs open, and we think everybody's done there. They're not. They're, they're way ahead. They're in great shape, but they're not where they need to be just yet and that's where we want to get to in a few months it absolutely is and I, what i see going on this week in canada is there's a lot of envy including me by the way I, you know when you look at these shots of europe and parts of the united states and <laughs> everybody sitting outside having lunch and a glass of wine and you know like we're nowhere near that you know i live in downtown toronto it's still a ghost town nothing yeah. is open and so, you know, I, I think these last couple of weeks are going to be a bit challenging, but I think I, we're very close now to things getting better. I And some of that is the, um, I'm sure, you, I haven't found a doctor yet to concur with um, the outdoor restrictions from the stay-at-home order, but some of that, like when I see the, the, the government saying yesterday, well, well, we'll give you details on how we're reopening, I'm like, we feel so far away from that because of golf and tennis and basketball nets uh, taken down and pickleball for seniors not being allowed and all that all that stuff. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to leap forward. It still doesn't make it right what's been done the last 33 days, I don't think, to 15 million of us. No, and I th- I, I actually do agree. I think we went overboard with the outdoor activities. And, and look at, look, you know, I, I as I said, I'm in downtown Toronto. So what I see is a lot of these, you know, 17, 18, 19-year-olds that would be out distancing with masks, maybe playing basketball. I mean, not really playing it, but, but at a distance, you know, shooting mm-hmm. hoops and things like that. Um, they're not allowed. So they're all now back inside, you know, small apartments or wherever they're, you know, they're living. Um, you know, no real benefit there. And, um, 
Yeah, it's I, I live down by the waterfront and there's a thousand restrictions. You have to be very careful, you know, and I don't want a seven hundred dollar fine. I and I don't really understand all the restrictions. So, you know, mm. that's that's when you don't even understand what you're up against as a citizen, this is not great. Not great at all. Hey, Dr. Bowman, I loved our conversation. Thank you very much for making the time uh, a great voice of reason and, and wonderful messaging for our audience uh, to stay positive, too, even amidst some of this uh, some of this trouble that we're in right now. Thank you very much for the for doing this for me. Been a pleasure. Talk again. Take care. Okay, Dr. Kerry Bowman uh, joining us from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring on our uh, next guest. You'll see him this evening. Do you have one of those... Um, televisions they still work uh he's the anchor on global news at 5 30 and 6 i often watch on the app to be honest on my fire stick uh and the host of focus ontario as well and the host of the alan carter radio program you need a radio for that or the radio player canada app coming up at noon today so he's taking some prep time to chat with us uh he's alan carter listen um it, it is remarkably emasculating you're a man's man i'm sure you've never had to replace your lawn and if you have you've done it yourself it's terrible to be here with guys doing it at my house right now Oh, I feel for you, brother. I do. That is like you just hang your head in shame when you got to have somebody come in and reseed your lawn. I mean, yeah, ah, that's that's rough. I look. I, I'm I'm with you. I, I I have a kind of a corner lot, uh, and all the dogs, you know, just drop off on my lawn on the way by, and it's just I, I fight this endless battle. And we're, you know, I love the fact that we're here in the nice warm weather, and the warm weather's back. But you know what that also means? slave to the grass you're slave to the grass from here till october yeah yeah you got to be on it and when you 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 go wave you tend to take your family for a week at the cottage or something like that it's on your mind you want you call your neighbors and you're like did it rain today did we get any rain is it 19 no it's 35 that was the humidex and you just why, you're thinking about your this? lawn why do we do this to ourselves greg what, what is this something <laughs> that was passed down to us from our fathers why I don't know. why do we feel this need to just like what am I, what is it a putting green out for, like I'm not going to do that why why do I care Thank you. I, I'm going to put you in touch with my wife who suggested, who who had the temerities to suggest, and she's usually right, but she had the temerity to be wrong in this case and suggest, yes, artificial grass. And I'm like, we don't live in a trailer park in New Mexico. I'm not doing that. That that's that's an absolute admission of and an abscondment of the male duty. Like again, why don't you chop some body parts off while you're at it? <laughs> oh, my friend is a so many things. So many, way, so many uh, flaming cats in the air at all times. There are, there are, there are. Uh, I, I'm, I'm dying to ask, because uh, you've covered the beat before, uh, and you were in Vancouver with the 94 playoffs. When you saw the news, I'm sure you'll address it on your show, the Canadians having fans in. Um, what's what's your first instinct on that? Are they nuts, or are we just way, way, way out of control, Orwellian, too hesitant, we've canceled everything for the summer and the c and and everything, or do you go, yeah, good for you, Quebec, like, that's great, get some people in the building. What was your thought? Uh, you know, I, I I think that what we're seeing now in the province of Ontario is the direct result of what happened in February, which is in February, the scientific table and all the doctors said, don't reopen, we have variants in here, we haven't crushed the second wave, it's incredibly dangerous, don't do it. And the Ford government went, yeah, but haircuts, uh-huh. and yeah, but, you know, 50 people inside haven't... Uh, you know, dinners in certain regions of the of the province, and you know, and then all of a sudden, we, you know, then we have a crisis because precisely 
what the doctors predicted happened. And now what we have is a provincial leadership that is so absolutely gut shy. Oh my God, they're terrified. They're absolutely horrified. They're terrified to do anything. And so now we have a situation where I think we are going to lag the rest of the country in terms of, you know, doing things like letting people in, actually announcing a plan for reopening, which we have none. It's because they're terrified and there's no leadership. Yeah, I wondered about the mayors. I wondered if they'd be a little louder. There have been some. Patrick Brown on that one weekend, the day after, tweeted the picture of him and his young son walking past the playground, and, and that and that got at people, and they walked the playground thing back. But the I, I've talked to spokespeople for mayors, Alan, and they've said, you know what, the heat's not on us right now. Why would we want? Why would we want to act like we can have influence here when we can let the Ford government take all the heat? And so they're kind of laying low a little bit. They'll, they'll say, oh, I, you know, we want to respect science and. The science table, but they're not they're not as angry as you, me, and our neighbors are about about the fact we're thirty three days into this. Yeah, I don't. I, I I know that everybody's tired. I know you're. I know you're tired. I'm tired. I mm. went and played basketball this morning. I went out this morning and shot some hoops. That's my little civil disobedience, right? That's my double <laughs> finger salute uh, to the rules. But, but at the same time, that's me by myself with a basketball. This is sucking on the court, just looking horrible and ridiculous all on my own. So I know that that's fine. And I also know what isn't fine, which is gathering, which is, you know, parties. We know, like, at this point, we all know. You don't have to be told, you know, wash your hands, wear a mask. You know what you need to do. What I worry about is because they're trying to tell us, well, you can't go by yourself and play basketball, then, you know, then, then we're also ticked off. We're like, well, then screw it. I'm getting in a hot tub with 30 people. Yeah, that, that too. I always, I'm dying to talk about McVitie, but the one thing I think of, I always think about um, percentiles. Like when you take, you take the LSAT and you end up in a certain, uh, I won't tell you where I was, the certain percentile when you take that in, uh, in university. And so you and me consume media. The fact that our audience is listening to your show later today or this show now probably means they're in the, they're in the 80th percentile of consuming media information. But what about somebody who's in the 21st? What about somebody who's in the 8th? And I worry that, they don't know as much about the virus as we do. They're not consuming this. So when the province says, hey, like, it's dangerous outside, then we're getting back to people worried about surfaces and swings and slides and taking Lysol to the to the playground for, for Johnny and Jennifer, their four-year-old twins. And you're like, we're not going to get as quickly out of this if we're not all knowing the right things. And that concerns me. Yeah. You know, since, the, since day one, day one, what, did, what have we needed? We've needed clear, consistent, and comprehensible communication from the government. And what we get is we get something from the government, and then we get you know something else from what I call the Greek chorus, all the doctors on the sidelines. And you know, and then you know, then you throw in a couple of anti-masker rallies, and you know, it's just this kind of all this swirl out there that I think just sort of you know it it just adds to the fatigue, the frustration. And the kind of belief like, ah, oh, God, screw it, you know, and I just that worries me so much right now that that's really out there. This sort of like, screw this. I'm just doing what I want. And we're so close. And I really hope that we can just hold off for a little bit longer. Yeah. the As you, as you play on the show, the drops, the yahoos and the guys, a few fries short of a happy meal. We need them to stand down these next two weeks. Don't have a big hockey party Saturday night in your basement, basically. Yeah. Bingo. 
Um, you're part of the uh, AstraZeneca uh, generation. Um, are you like? Are we talked to Kerry Bowman? He is too, and he's ready to roll with a second shot. There's just no significant. There's no evidence whatsoever that the second shot is harmful. There's debates about VITT on the first, but the, I, everything I see. There was a study from Spain yesterday denotes if you were good on your first, like like line up for that second. And we got most of our politicians are the AstraZeneca generation as well, and and they should be advocating this. What like you're not worried about a second AZ shot, are you? No, no, I'm worried about you know doses going to waste. I had Rocco Rossi, the uh, CEO of the Chamber of Commerce, Ontario Chamber of Commerce, on my show a couple of days ago, and he mm-hmm. also AstraZeneca generation, and he said like, it would be criminal. This is positively criminal if anything goes to waste. Remember, we've got 50,000 of them sitting in a fridge right now. We've got another 250,000 of them in the country that just came in recently. Their expiry date's a little later. But let's, I mean, let's get to it. Pitter-patter, let's get at her. You know, let's. <laughs> enough with the, you know, humming and hawing. Like, I know that Teresa Tam yesterday said those that got AstraZeneca first are likely to be able to choose their second dose, whether it's Pfizer or whether it's AstraZeneca. Evidence showing mixing is good. Evidence showing, like you say, that there's really very almost like one, one in a million adverse of impact um, from the second shot of AstraZeneca. Just, can we just get on with it? Every day, every day I say when uh, when they do the, the, the Dr. Dave uh, Barbara Yaffe show, every day I say I'm not going to listen, and then I just can't help myself. So I'm in the car listening while my son's at an orthodontist appointment, and uh, and he says, um, you know, right now we're not planning on uh, administering expired doses to uh, residents. I'm like, no, that would make you a mad scientist. Thank you for that. Like, no one was asking if we're giving expired doses to people. We're just wondering if the doses are going to expire. Ah. You just skim a little bit of the mold <laughs> off the top. It's good. It's still good. <laughs> like I, you know, let's put this guy in charge of a grocery store. Listen, that expired milk. Um, you know, we're, we're gonna. I don't mind rolling the dice. It's skim. Does a different taste than the whole milk. That's not two percent even. All right, Charles McVitie. Uh, there was a meeting last night, and we. I, I I really wanted to have you on because your show at noon has talked a lot about this. I've tried to too, um, and maybe not in a pandemic when our heads are spinning around like uh, Linda Blair and The Exorcist. This gets a ton more attention, but this is a conservative preacher who's gotten in big trouble for homophobic and Islamophobic comments recently. This isn't uh, 1988 comments, not that those would be any more appropriate. And um, and the government, the, the Ford government, Ford specifically, is pushing through to maybe make his school, Canada Christian College out in Whitby, um, a university that would grant university degrees. It's been a big story. And yet um, sometimes I, I think, well, it's not quite big enough. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm 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 out there on you know on the radio banging a drum on this one as loudly as often as I can, and I, and I appreciate you being right there too because I think it is a, an incredibly important story. It says a lot about Ontario. It says, it says a lot about what kind of society we want. You know, you know, who do we want to reward? And speaking of rewards, it says a great deal. I think about the nature of the Ford government. I often say this that. You know, unlike uh, maybe a Jason Kenney or a, you know a Stephen Harper, you know, Doug Ford is not an, uh, a conservative ideologue, mm-hmm. and I also don't believe that Doug Ford uh, shares the viewpoints, uh, the uh, anti-LGBTQ viewpoints of Charles McVitie necessarily. 
But what I do know about Doug Ford is that he's loyal to his friends. He likes to be liked, and he likes to be able to reward his friends. You know, bring in Charles, bring in uh, Ron Tavner, for example. There, you know, yeah. example number one. I mean, we can go on with the examples of, of this. And what this is is it it has the appearance of a quid pro quo. Uh, Charles McVitie helped Doug Ford win the leadership of the PC party narrowly over Christine Elliott, and then also supported him in the 2018 election. Now, an empty cardboard box could have beat Kathleen Wynne in 2018. We all know that. But nevertheless, he still helped. And this looks like quid quo quo, quid quo pro, and it, it kind of stinks a little bit. Yeah, it, uh, there's not much that can. What could stop this right now? There's a post. So this week, there's meetings. There was a meeting last night. There's obviously more as we move through the week. But the post secondary education quality assessment board. Yeah, the PCAB. Yeah, I did go see a doctor about it a couple uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, once I realized my lawn was going all to hell, my my PCAB wasn't working quite as well. Um. What? Uh, but but is that is that the last stop? Is that the last stand at the goal line that can prevent this from transpiring? Yeah. So what the government has long said when accused of what I just talked about, <laughs> put their <laughs> response in here for balance. What, what they have said all along is that, uh, look, this is an independent process, arm's length, PCAB, which really, man, that's a, it's a rashy thing, that PCAB. Yeah. Uh, so this independent, unelected body, what it does is it basically it takes – applications from schools, private schools, all kinds of schools around the uh, province who are trying to, you know, become degree-granting institutions. This is the organization that makes that ruling. So what the government did is they put through an omnibus bill, all about red tape, and right in there, they right in the middle of it, they put in this Canada Christian College thing. And they said, well, okay, no, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, because PCAB is going to rule on it. And it's all arm's length, nothing to do with us. Well, PCAB apparently has made their decision, apparently they met yesterday, made the decision. Their decision, as far as I can understand, because it's very, very, uh, you know, this is, this, this is deep in the weed stuff. So it goes to the ministry, it goes mm-hmm. to Ross Romano, who is the minister in charge of uh, universities. And so it goes to his ministry, and... I believe he's going to disseminate the ruling. And interestingly enough, he's got, a, he's got a press conference scheduled for Friday. I'm being told that it's probably not coming out till Friday. And what, I mean, the mother of all news dumps would drop something Friday afternoon. Oh, yeah. Victoria yeah, Friday around, around 6 p.m. or so. Yeah. Right. So just you know, yeah. keep your eye on it. Right. We don't know when, when it's coming out. Mm. So it's basically up to PCAP. Now, PCAP says, no, no, thank you. I guess maybe the story is a bit of a nothing burger, although it's still, you know, it's still like, why was it ever in there in the first place? I think it's just kind of still there's questions about that. If, if Peep Cab says, you bet, you know, go ahead, change your name to a university. I forget what exactly they're changing it into. Yeah. And I'll go ahead and start handing out, uh, you know, university degrees in science. The guy, the president in charge, thinks the, the Earth is what seven thousand years old, and you can get a degree of science from. <laughs> and people rode dinosaurs. I think it, that was also sure. the, literally the flint. Whatever opens at the Flintstones, that's sort of what was happening. There was a rock quarry. There were uh, there were babies, and Wilma and, and Betty were at home. Well, I guess that doesn't change from the fifties, really. Whatever. Um, so I got to leave it there. I, I got to leave it there. Your show is in an hour and a half. Uh, the Alan Carter Radio Program on uh, on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And on tonight, uh, Global News 530 and 6. Pleasure. Pleasure having you on. It's great to conversa- uh, have a conversation with you. 
Great talking to you, Greg. You, you take care of yourself. You got it. Uh, there's the man, Alan Carter, uh, Global News Tonight, 5.30 and 6 o'clock. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm very much a, uh, a U.S. Supreme Court kind of nerd about this stuff, and they're going to review Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, having a ban on almost all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Roe v. Wade may be a case that you learned about in high school. If not, hopefully so. Um, and maybe you even took university courses. I was a politics major, so we talked about big cases like this or Brown versus Board of Education or Plessy Ferguson, whatever. So not to I'm not trying to do cartwheels here, but Roe v. Wade is something you hear instantly. and You go, ah, yes, that's what turned the tide. So let me point this out. We don't talk about this that much in Canada because it's a hot button issue and people have very strong personal feelings about it. Many of those feelings are influenced by. Um, religious beliefs. So I understand that. Uh, I never try and talk people out of their beliefs, but I sure have my own. And I don't tolerate people trying to talk me out of my beliefs and using, let's say, the Bible to do so. But here's where it gets political. And here's where we all can relate. And I'm trying to make this relatable to all of us here. That's the goal. Andrew Shear, um tried to I think sort of have it both ways in the 2019 federal election. He described himself as anti-abortion, but to many, that's not the same as pro-life. But he promised that if Scheer was elected, and remember, Andrew Scheer won the popular vote across our country, okay? This wasn't some epic failure at the polls, but many considered it an open goal um, on the conservative side of things for him to at least win a minority government. He did not do that. Um, and there were key seats in Ontario that were lost uh, that had been won before, obviously, often over and over again during the Stephen Harper years. But Scheer said, I'm not going to reopen the abortion debate. I'm not going to limit a woman's right to choose or and, and that, by the way, that same principle came up with same sex marriage. Andrew Scheer believes marriage is between a man and a woman. I don't agree with that. I think rules are are liquid and you can love who you love and you can marry who you want and you shouldn't be treated any differently. And we should be giving you the same benefits and the same protections in our society. And obviously, there's many people in the United States that feel the same way. But remember, Barack Obama was once against gay marriage. Hillary Clinton was once against gay marriage. So a lot of this is evolution of opinion. A lot of it is. But I bring this up to say this is going to be really, really intriguing because people will still get abortions if Roe v. Wade is overturned. The problem is they won't be legal, safe abortions, and that's incredibly problematic. Now, really quick, I don't mind weighing in on this. Do do I consider myself pro-choice? Absolutely, I do. But since having my own kids and being uh, in the room, if you will, for the process, have my opinions on some limitations changed? Maybe so. I don't think about it every day. I would give you the example of countries like Norway and France that say you cannot have an abortion after 14 weeks. That seems a window of time uh, to make a choice after three and a half months. Um, Here, we allow it for a longer period of time. In Australia, they allow it for up to six months of pregnancy. I'm not as comfortable with that, quite frankly. So it's it's a big, big issue. And what we see in the states now with a heavy, heavy conservative lean to the Supreme Court, I don't know that it's going to influence anything in Canada, but it might in, in terms of policy, it certainly might influence our conversations. That's for sure. I want to bring on a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. He is Andrew Fergil. Andrew, thank you very much for making the time to talk about this with me. Thanks so much, uh, Greg. Thanks for having me on. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, as I said, this has not become um, this has faded away, I suppose, from being uh, a hot button election issue. But it, it did crop its way up into headlines. And Andrew Shear had to answer questions about his uh, policy on it and his beliefs on it. Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader now, has said it's certainly something he won't introduce. He's pro-choice. But can what happens in the states have any influence on our conversation about it? I think theoretically it can. Um, I think what Shear and O'Toole have said follows what the conservative position was under Stephen Harper. I mean, he had a majority uh, for nearly five years following a, a minority government before that, and they didn't bring in any restrictions. They didn't want to reopen that debate. Um, and so I think their positions are a bit more consistent with that. They have a line that they have to straddle. Uh, because there mm-hmm. are significant numbers, I think, of their base that are uh, much more pro-life. Uh, but there, there hasn't been any, um, at least at the highest levels uh, of the Conservative Party, there hasn't been any movement on that. Now, can that change? Well, it's difficult to see the United States changing that because, uh, recall, Greg, in the United States, abortion is a state-level issue. And so if uh, Rowan Wade gets scaled back or overturned, what you'll end up seeing in the United States is a hodgepodge of different uh, uh, states with different rules around abortion. There's not going to be some cohesive American solution to the abortion abortion Mm -hmm. issue uh, that would then, uh, I think, create any sort of movement here. So I find it difficult to see any Supreme Court decision in the U.S. galvanizing anything here. That's really interesting you say that. It, it, before we talk about the potential for the decision itself, are a, a, as you'd know, are we already there in the states? And I'd argue, especially the states with Republican governors, it's already more difficult in those states than blue states to get an abortion. But that's that's more they want fewer clinics. They want fewer hours. They want to talk you out of it. There's a lot more, um, you know, push and pull to pressure women to take these these uh, these fetuses to term. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And you've hit on a very important point, which is really there are a couple of different ways that abortion can be limited. One is by law and, and by putting a, a restriction on when an abortion can take place. But the second uh, which is is much more broad, are barrier uh, uh, access barriers for women. Uh, you have states right now where uh, there may only be one abortion clinic in the entire state. And to get an abortion at that clinic, there are certain numerous hurdles that have to be jumped. And there are some access issues that similarly face women here in Canada. There are some provinces where it's just more difficult to find a clinic Um, And so I I don't want to minimize that, but those are different barriers than what a lot of Southern United States, um, uh, women in Southern uh, states especially, uh, have to face. So so those barriers are there now. Uh, What Roe and Wade and and, uh, what the the Mississippi decision would do would allow governors to scale back and and to uh, introduce legislation that affects the first of those, which is by law limiting abortion. Yeah. Um, the likelihood of this, people had been predicting this when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, when uh, Donald Trump pushed uh, a- Amy Con- Coney Barrett through um, to become that ninth uh, 
Supreme Court justice, and it basically left a conservative majority of of six to three. Now, remember, there were I, I would point out, as you'd know also, there were two fears about her getting on the Supreme Court. One was the idea that the entire court would potentially mess with the results of of the of the election. They chose not to do that. That was a bridge too far. But many said, well, if that doesn't happen, certainly, certainly abortion ends up being on the table uh, after after Justice Ginsburg's passing. Correct. It is. And, and Greg, you can't uh, you can't always assume that, you know, what, what a Supreme Court is going to do. Uh, a lot of those jurists will surprise you. And mm-hmm. the last time an abortion case went up to the Supreme Court, it was a 5-4 decision with, with Chief Justice Roberts, who is conservative, siding with the liberal part of that bench. And uh, as you noted, there was the election uh, uh, litigation that went up and the Supreme Court's quickly swatted away. That said, um, with with Coney Barrett, Justice Coney Barrett on there now, she has writings where she has been very critical of Roe and Wade. You have two justices in Tom, in um, Alito and in Justice Thomas who have written uh, dissenting opinions wanting to change Roe and Wade. Um, realistically, it's going to be a question of, I think, of what Justice Gorsuch and what Justice Kavanaugh are going to do, but the numbers are there. Uh, This is something conservatives have been waiting for for a long time. They have a 6-3 majority, um, and I think a lot of court watchers in the United States are expecting uh, that there's going to be a decision that at the very least significantly rolls back Roe and Wade and allows state legislatures down there to put res- far more restrictions on abortion uh, than have a- have existed in decades. Andrew Fergil is kind enough to join us lecture with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto on the Bill Kelly Show. Greg Brady in for Bill this week. The one issue as well with the Supreme Court, I mentioned I, I love getting into the meat and potatoes of, of the court down there, is the idea of court packing. That was pushed forward as an election issue uh, when it was Trump versus Biden. And I actually thought that's a smart policy because Biden would never come out and say, I absolutely won't do it. You've got my word on it. He he was very flirty, if you will, saying we'll see what happens. But since then, he's been elected and there's been no talk of it. I, do, do you ever see it, it coming up in his presidency? I feel like it's uh, it's it's not going to transpire. And the nine justices are there, although there are people on the left probably urging uh, Joe Biden to consider uh, adding his own justices and expanding the court. I, I don't see it happening with this Senate being 50 50 mm-hmm. and with senators like Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema. They would never go for this. Roosevelt tried this in the 30s when he had a massive majority uh, of Democrats in both chambers. And the Senate then approached him and said, it's a dead letter. Uh, it, it's, it's such a difficult task for uh, any president to undertake on either the left or the right. Um, this is it's one of those things that's that seems and feels like it's woven into the fabric of your democracy that uh, your Supreme Court has nine. And there are times mm-hmm. when it will swing conservative and there were times that it'll swing liberal. But to pack the court and to change it from, say, nine to 11 or nine to 15 justices, as has been floated, it's one of those things that I think for a lot of Americans and quite frankly, for a lot of Canadians, too, would feel like a very radical swing. Um, And I I just don't see any way it would float in this Senate or even in a Senate where you had a few more Democratic senators 
there would be a lot of swing state senators who would be very uneasy about supporting that. I hear that. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, really enjoyed our chat. Thanks for the great conversation. And uh, hopefully we get to do it again. I appreciate the time. My pleasure. Anytime, Greg. Uh, Andrew Fergil joining us. Lecture with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.